Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith. That's right. This train is building up ahead of steam each and every day that we are on. So what I want you to do is grab your ticket, get on board, enjoy the ride. This train is going to take you on a journey, turn some corners, and maybe pick up a few passengers along the way. So what do we have on tap for today's episode? Even I don't know that. So the best way to find out is tune in and enjoy the ride of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. And we're about ready to get this train on the track. So stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. The Coach's Corner is sponsored by The Health Connection, the best choice for alternative medicine and holistic healing. The Health Connection has two locations in Wichita, Kansas, 1709 West Douglas Avenue and 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170. And they also have a third location at 1001 North Rose Hill Road in Rose Hill, Kansas. Check them out on the web at thehealthconnection.online or give them a call 316-841-0003. Back to the show. Choo-choo! Coppin State, Laura Harper has the Eagles hitting with a 3-2 conference record, 9-9 overall for the season. Respectable numbers in her second year as head women's basketball coach. Respectable, only if you don't know how, well, the recent history at Coppin. They're amazing numbers if you do. You see, those nine wins are just one fewer than the last three seasons combined. We'll say it yet, but you can't ignore the hard turnaround the program has made under her leadership. Leadership that was honed as a player during her time at Maryland. She won a national championship with the Terps and credits Brenda Freeze, almost exclusively with showing her the path to follow as a coach. When I asked her about this job initially, I was like, well, what do you think? You know, like it's gonna be really, really hard. And a lot of people say it's not a good job. And she said, absolutely, it's a good job because you're gonna be the coach. And it was one of those things that you're right. You know, like you never realize how sometimes you just need someone to tell you that. chance to record the episode with her unfortunately all the audio didn't record for some particular reason technical glitch so what i'm going to do is i'm going to play a portion of the interview that i had with coach laura harper and hopefully you enjoy it so Welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, a portion of the Coach's Corner, which is sponsored by the Health Connection with three locations to serve you. Two in Wichita at 1701 West Douglas, 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170, and a third location in Rose Hill, Kansas at 1001 
North Rose Hill Road. So here's a portion of the Coach's Corner with Coach Laura Harper of Coppin State University. Welcome back in to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, an edition of the Coach's Corner, which is sponsored by the Health Connection with three locations to serve you. Two of them in Wichita at 1701 West Douglas, 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170, and also in Rose Hill, Kansas at 1001 North Rose Hill Road. Stop by and tell Natalie that the A-Train Anthony Smith sent you. We are back on the Coach's Corner with my special guest. And I will go ahead and say my good friend, Coach Laura Harper. We shared before the break about the discipline. So now what I want to get into is, Coach, I want to talk about your playing career. Because uh, you was talking about that basketball was a means of way. So you end up going through your college career. You had the championship in, I believe, 2009. If I'm in my, not, not 2009 with D-Rome. What year was that championship year? So we won a championship in 2006. 2006. I graduated in 2008. Okay. So you went in the first round in the WNBA draft, number 10, to the Sacramento Monarchs. Am I correct? Correct, in 2008. Yes, I'm going off of memory, so <laughs> I don't have my notes. I'm going off of memory. So what was the draft process like? Is there like a pre-draft process, get feels of where you're possibly going? What is that like? You know, it's funny you talk about it because I feel like the process, the draft process has shifted a little bit now. There's so much hype and glitz, and you know, the kids now have the name, image, and likeness deals, so they're able to have agent before the year's over but I mean I just was different I just wanted to play basketball so I was so devastated when we lost in the elite eight that I didn't even want to talk about the WNBA I couldn't I mean even now I'm just I have not learned how to lose and it's one of those things where I really just shut down so after we lost I didn't have that much time to get ready for the draft I didn't even know. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm invited. Wow, that's cool. You know, I just, I was the different kind of kid. And I just wanted to win basketball games and I wanted to continue to play basketball. That's all I really cared about. And I trusted my agent so much that I knew that he was going to take care of the rest because I knew I was going to play hard and do my part. All right. So you get drafted by Sacramento. Yep. What is the WNBA culture like? Yeah, so when I got drafted by Sacramento, you know, I just thought that we would have, you know, the same kind of team as college and all my best friends and we'd hang out after practice. And it definitely was a reality check because now I was the baby. And, you know, there were a lot of veterans. One of my best friends was, 10 years older than me, you know, that I've met there. And I just had to get adjusted to you're there to do a job. You leave and you come back to do your job. I had great relationships with my teammates, but it just was a different, just was a different experience to me. And I'm just so grateful for some of the veterans that took such good care of me. 
Now, you know, I have to ask this question right here because you're in the NBA all the time, especially rookies. I guess they call it hazing or whatnot, or, you know, the rookie treatment. Like, okay, here, rookie, you grab my bag, carry my bag. So do those kind of things go? Because I'm reminded of the story that Shaq told when he was a rookie that one of the veterans said, here, go wash my car for me. Well, Shaq, what he did, instead, he found a kid, said, here, kid, here's a couple of dollars to wash this car. So do rookies get in the WNBA get the same kind of treatment that the male counterparts get? What is it like being a rookie in the WNBA? You know, I think if we're being honest, I think it depends from team to team. I was really lucky in Sacramento. One of my best friends now today, Tisha Penachero, was a point guard. And she had been there for the whole time. And I feel as though the culture was right. You know, Rebecca Brunson was a forward there. I had just taken over for a Hall of Famer and Olympian in Yolanda Grissom. And Mm -hmm. Sacramento had really good culture. That's why they were winners. So they didn't really do too much hazing, per se, to us rookies. Um, Did we know we were rookies? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, I think the vet, for the most part, say to themselves. Okay. So the competition in the mm-hmm. WNBA, because you've had the opportunity to play in the WNBA. You had, a, I believe, a five-year career, but you've also played overseas. So what is the competition like in the WNBA as opposed to playing overseas? And what is I the mean, adjustment like to playing overseas? In the WNBA, everyone's just faster, quicker, stronger. So you just don't have a chance to mess up. If you think that you have a second to be slow, well, you're beat. And... um I think my years in the WBA, I was not the most skilled player at all, but I just worked really, really hard. And I was pretty fast, and I rebounded the ball exceptionally well. So I think as a pro, you need to have a niche. You have to have something that you do exceptionally well. And that, for me, was defense and rebounding. And for the most part, I made layups when I was open. Um, but with that being said, you know, I had to guard Lisa Leslie, I had to guard Candace Park, I had to guard Sylvia Fowles, I had to guard the best forwards and centers in the world. And that was something that I really took pride in and knew that in order for me to still continue to have a job, those were the things I had to do. So I'm going to assume that your moniker was pretty much, you was a lockdown defender then, weren't you? Yes, yes. I definitely was, I was on the floor to defend and rebound. And if I caught the ball, I needed to make a layup and not mess up. Okay. Now, <laughs> you're six foot five, am I correct? Correct. Have you ever tried to dunk in a game or in practice? In high school, yes. But in college, I tore my Achilles and I tore my ACL. And since then, it just I was not the most coordinated, you know. So <laughs> I didn't really have um, <laughs> the opportunity. Again. I like to be conservative and make the shots that I took. So okay. I didn't want to really take that many risks. Gotcha. I gotcha. So your career in the NBA, and you was naming some of the players you played against. I'm going to give you a name, and you tell me what it was like. Brittany Griner. Okay. I did not play against Brittany Griner. She's actually younger than me. Okay. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay, now you mentioned the name Diane Taurasi. 
Diane Taurasi. Of course, I played with her in Russia. I played with her when she was in Phoenix. And she is the most determined player I've ever played against. I mean, she was going to score. She was going to do exactly what she wanted to do. And no one was going to stop her from that. I learned so much from her as far as just routine and ritual and just being so, having an indomitable will. She defines what that actually means. Okay. Maya Moore. You know, I didn't really specifically have to guard Maya. There was a few switches where I had to make sure she didn't get an open three. Um, you know, but Maya, Maya was just, I don't know if there's ever going to be another Maya Moore. If you think of how she carried herself, how she moved, how she played, how all she needed was one second to get her shot off. You know, you made a mistake, the shot was off, and it was in like 70% of the time. So guarding Maya was more so of making sure that if there were screens that I didn't really mess up and I was there for the help. <laughs> All right. So who was the stiffest competition you faced in the WNBA? I mean, that one player that of all the ones that you could lock down, seemed like this one particular just had your number and couldn't be stopped. Who would that be? Um, I would have to say probably it would be a close two. Probably Candace and Lisa Leslie. Candace Parker and Lisa Leslie. Definitely legends. Most yeah, definitely. those those were the hardest checks that I had. And I mean, let's be honest, I always held my own, but those were very those were very hard checks for me. And if I'm correct, Lisa Leslie, she actually dunked in the game, didn't she? Yes, she was the first player in the WNBA to dunk, actually. Right. Okay, so you had a, I'm going to say you had a pretty stellar career in the WNBA. Now, yeah, is, it was cut short with injuries. With yeah. injuries. So what is the overseas culture like? What is it like playing overseas? You know, overseas is definitely a lot less stress, pressure, because you know, the defense isn't the same. It's a lot easier to score overseas. So it's just a lot more fun because you're playing against Europeans and Americans, not just all Americans. Mm-hmm. So it, it's pretty much more, like you say, pretty much easier, probably more laid back. Yes, more not, fun. More fun, <laughs> less business-like, just cut loose and just play the game that you love to play, huh? Well, it's still business. You know, my last season I was in Russia and I was playing against, again, Tarasi, Sue Bird, Candace Parker, Dewana Bonner. I mean, Lauren Jackson. There, it, I had a lot of competition my last year playing overseas. It's just the talent was a little. It's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. I want to let you know that this podcast is listener-supported. That's right. Driven by you, the listener. So if you want to advertise or sponsor a segment, simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or hit me up at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com to get your ad or sponsorship ran on this podcast. Once again, the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, 
your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Black History Month. Black History Sports Month. Moments in Black History in Sports. On the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. So stay tuned. And enjoy. Moments in Black History and Sports on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. that I am very thrilled to be doing as we get back on track into our moments in black history and sports as we come to you with the fourth installment of the making of a magician the Marlon Bristow story As the sounds of Lift Every Voice by Tasha Cobb resonates in the background, we're going to go ahead and give you the story. It is part four. Leaving Denver and leaving a legacy in the NFL. As America prepared for the new year, Ebony's January 1969 issue started to hit newsstands across the country. There on page 64 was Marlon Briscoe peering back at readers through his shoulder pads. The headline below the photo summed up the reason he had summed up the season he had just completed. Breakthrough for a black quarterback. For many people across the U.S. of the, across the U.S. of the country who didn't live in Colorado or weren't avid fans of the fledging American Football League, 
This was their introduction to the up-and-coming quarterback who shot pro football and become the league's first black starting quarterback. And his pioneer status was just the tip of the iceberg. In his rookie season, despite training for much of the offseason to play defense, Briscoe was the most promising young quarterback franchise had ever featured. Now he was in the pages of Ebony, the subject of a six-page feature. At that time, the Broncos were a floundering franchise that had yet to finish a season above 500. It's safe to say that it wasn't often that a national magazine featured any of their players. It was unfamiliar ground for the Broncos and their young star. But as the AFL Rookie of the Year runner-up departed Denver to return to Omaha to finish his college degree, the forming impression was that Briscoe's future was quite bright. Head coach Lou Saban and Broncos clearly did not feel as warmly about their quarterback situation. Even before Briscoe had finished his rookie season, the Broncos may have been maneuvering to acquire a new quarterback. On January 19, in 1969, the Denver Post, Dick Connor reported that Pat Liskey, the 1967 CFL Most Outstanding Player, had an informal agreement to join the Broncos before the 1968 season ended. Describing what he called hearsay evidence, the Broncos couldn't officially announce his signing until June. Connor wrote that as of early 1969, Liskey already had purchased a home and opened a bank account in Denver. Saban maintained that Briscoe would stay at the position and compete for the starting job along with Steve Tenzai, who started much of the 1968 season until the season was interrupted by several collarbone injuries. I've talked with Lou, Briscoe's college coach, Al Coniglia, and in a January press conference a few days later, and he believes Marlon will either make Steve Tenzai an excellent quarterback or sit him down. Then, in a March speech at Briscoe's alma mater, Saban said he was pleased, not surprised, with Briscoe's rookie season, but followed those comments up by saying if Briscoe wasn't the starting quarterback, the coaching staff would find another position for him where he could make an impact. If it seemed like the winds were starting to shift for the youngster, they would soon be a full gust. That spring, Briscoe got a call from his cousin, Bob Rose, who was living in Denver at the time. He called and told me they're having quarterback meetings. Why aren't you there? Briscoe recalls now. What happened was they went out and got Pete Liskey from Canada. So they had him and Steve Tenzai. He had healed his shoulder. He had healed. His shoulder had healed. So he was there, and they had a couple of, couple of other guys. They didn't invite me, so I told Bob that I was going to come to Denver and see what was going on, but I had to wait. I had to wait until after I got my degree. At the time, the Broncos told Denver Post that these sessions were informal, but Briscoe told Arthur William C. Roden in Third and a Mile that he, when he returned to Denver, he made a surprise trip to team headquarters and stood outside the coach's office at Saban, the quarterback's coach, and several quarterbacks walked out. They couldn't even look at me, Briscoe told Roden. If I didn't think it was wrong for a man to cry, I'd have cried. I was that hurt. I just turned and walked out. I knew I wasn't in their plans. 
it was like I'd never played that first year. Rumors later emerged that the Broncos had unsuccessfully tried to trade Briscoe during the offseason. In early June, the Broncos officially announced their acquisition of Liskey. Still, Saban spoke of an open competition. Pete should give Steve and Marlon a battle for the starting quarterback job, Saban said. It will be a three-way fight. We like that. There is nothing better than real honest competition for a job. To Briscoe, it didn't seem very honest. Between those quarterback meetings, the Liskey acquisition, and the notion that Saban may feel obligated to play Tenzai more because he had traded two first-round picks for him in 1967, it increasingly seemed like the odds were against Briscoe in spite of his rookie season. When he returned to practice, he found a situation much different from one to which he had hoped to return. They hemmed and hawed around, Briscoe says today. I went out to practice with them. I knew they didn't want me there. They were just kind of cold. Reps that we'd have passing the leadership role, none of that, none of that I got a chance to do. I knew that they didn't want me there. Then came the contract negotiation for Briscoe's second season. Hard feelings abounded. On one side, Briscoe wanted a fair chance to win the quarterback job, but it seemed like that may have already gone out the window. On the other side was Saban, a notoriously stubborn and belligerent coach who at times would challenge players to fights at halftime or threaten to fire them on the spot. The negotiations went nowhere. Briscoe later told press that the team offered him a cornerback's salary rather than a quarterback's. According to the same Denver Post story, Briscoe wanted a clause in his contract that he would only be played at quarterback. The Post reported Saban and the Broncos refused those terms. In addition to the salary disagreement, they wanted the option to have him handle punt and kickoff returns an unthinkable proposition for any player seriously being considered to lead the team at quarterback or to put him at another position should they feel it was best for the team. There was no going any farther. Briscoe left training camp and asked for his release. At that point, there was some kind of confusion. As Briscoe understood it, he signed a club release on August the 6th. The team told media that they were unclear what he had signed but would place him on waivers. That process didn't begin until Friday, August 8th, because weekend, he didn't clear waivers and became a free agent until August 12th. What I am going to do now is I am going to pause and take a break. And when I come back, I will conclude this story. Stay tuned. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith.
this is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! Sports Talk Podcast as we wrap up this edition of the Moments in Black History of Sports, the Marlon Briscoe story. This one entitled Leaving Denver and Leaving a Legacy in the NFL. So let's conclude this particular story. It says, all I wanted to do was compete, Briscoe says today. I didn't expect the Broncos to start me as their quarterback. All I wanted was a chance to compete for the job. I thought I deserved that. I didn't ask them to give me anything, but I could see that it wasn't going to happen. So I stayed in camp for about two weeks, and sensing that I wasn't going to be able to compete, I asked Lou Saban to release me. And I figured that somebody would take a chance on me. I had a hell of a year. Lou Saban said he would cut me, but he needed three or four days to cut me. And then he said he would release me. I'm trying to figure out why he would take three or four days to release a player. Just release me like you do everybody else. But what happened is somebody was spreading word that I was a malcontent. So, after four days, nobody touched me. A few days later, Briscoe was spotted in the crowd at a Broncos exhibition game. Well-wishers descended on him like ants to a Sunday school picnic, columnist Vic Picard wrote in the Broomfield Star. He would be sorely missed by everyone who appreciated his exciting play last year. That should include about 99% of our sports-minded populace. Saban apparently wasn't part of the 1%. Why Saban and the Broncos felt ambivalent about Briscoe's future at quarterback depends on who you ask. For his part, Saban pointed to Briscoe's size at the position. Marlon was an exceptional athlete, but he didn't have great size, Saban told Roden in third and a mile. He was always thrown out of a well. I figured his best position was receiver, but we were searching for a quarterback. In the four and a half years I was with the Broncos, we never found a guy who could take over the position. We brought in quarterbacks by the dozens. It didn't make much difference what their backgrounds were. I was going to play whoever could win because if you don't win, it's over. The size argument was powerful at the time. Stereotype of the arch. Arch. Octopole quarterback being tall was deeply entrenched as the assumption was that a shorter player could not see or throw over the lineman. However, as Briscoe told the Denver Post in 1968, nobody looks through a man. You don't look through his arms either, Briscoe continued. You look between them, through the creases. So the quarterback's 6'2 or 6'3 Steve is 6'5", and he can look over them. 
That ability didn't seem to help Tenzai very much in 1968 and in 1967 and 68, his first two seasons in Denver. Tenzai completed 40.3% of his passes for 21 touchdowns and 25 interceptions. Briscoe, meanwhile, had become the first Bronco quarterback in team history to throw more than 10 touchdowns in a season without also throwing more interceptions than touchdowns. Detractors could point to his 41.5 completion percentage, but that was still better than Tenzai's mark, and the circumstances of Briscoe's rookie season were unusual. Considering he trained as a cornerback during the summer and didn't even practice a quarterback with the team until the season had already begun, it seemed likely Briscoe could have done even better if he had the chance. We could have won a lot of ball games with Marlon, ring of famer Rich Tombstone Jackson says. No telling really how far we could have gone. I just know that Marlon had all the physical tools to get the job done. He could pass, he was smart, and he could move. That was an asset that none of the quarterbacks that we had possessed. Yet Briscoe couldn't shake the hype conversation, nor the one, the stereotype, he was simply a running quarterback, despite stats that said otherwise. One of the few sports writers to point out his absurdity at the time was Wally Provost of Briscoe's hometown newspaper, the Omaha World Herald. Denver Post columnist Jim Graham reflects the coach's attitude when he writes, Briscoe's threat is mainly as a runner, Provost wrote in 1969. Joe Namath became player of the year while hurling 15 touchdown passes in 1968. Briscoe backed into his job and threw 14 touchdown passes. Poor Briscoe, he's mainly a running threat. Yet, it wasn't unprecedented for white quarterbacks to deviate from the status quo pocket passer stereotype. After the 1968 season, scrambling Fran Tarkenton was a four-time Pro Bowler. Within a decade, he would add five more Pro Bowls, 1975 League MVP honors, and help lead the Vikings to three Super Bowls. It took some imagination to believe in Marlon Briscoe, says Dirk Chatelain of the World Herald, and I don't think Lou Saban had that imagination. Broncos' judgment of Briscoe and the eventual breakup, as well as the decisions by other teams not to pick him up as a quarterback, is also deeply tied to the reality that race was an enormous factor even if it wasn't said explicitly. Some of Briscoe's teammates, like offensive lineman Walter Highsmith-Fields, it's impossible to say there was any other real reason why Briscoe didn't get an honest shot at the starting job in 1969. We knew why, Highsmith says, because he was black. Doug Williams, a six-foot-four quarterback from Grambling State, who earned the lead a decade later in the prototypical pocket passer mode, could see it for what it was. With Marlon Briscoe, from talking to the people and seeing what I saw. Kyler Murray, that's exactly who Marlon was, Williams said, in 1968. They weren't ready for Kyler Murray. Hell, they weren't ready for Russell Wilson. They weren't ready for me in 1968. Ultimately, the takeaway becomes that pro football in America was neither ready to accept that black athletes could play quarterback nor the effects of that culture change. I don't know whether or not the league, the owners, the coaches, the general managers, or the world was ready for a Marlon Briscoe, Williams says. I think Marlon played in Denver because he had to. It was an emergency, and I think he 
did too well and they didn't want to live with the fact of what they have to go through if they kept Marlon around. Aside from the institutional and systemic racism in pro football and society at the time, Briscoe himself is unsure whether Saban acted on any racial animosity. See, that's one thing I always wondered, Briscoe says. He could have not played me a quarterback. I look at it that way. I look at it fairly, even in times of yore. He was the head coach, and he was at a time where racism was rampant. He didn't have to play me. He could have just kind of scooted me out of the league. He figured if nobody else was going to touch me, and he wasn't going to touch me, he didn't have to do it. That's the one way I looked at it. I tried to look at it from two sides, but nevertheless, that was the situation at the time. In black America, and in everything, we had to endure a lot of racism back then. I always wonder. I know I played well enough to be able to play. He would get another chance to prove it, but not a quarterback. Shortly before the 1969 season, he landed with the Bills, who unfortunately were in no need of another passer. They needed a wide receiver. Briscoe still wanted to play quarterback, but he also just wanted to play football. He accepted and proceeded to devote himself to learning the position. After making the Bills' roster, Briscoe became one of the top threats alongside future Broncos Ring of Famer Haven Moses. In the years that followed, Briscoe continued to improve. He earned a Pro Bowl selection and a second-team All-Pro nod from the Pro Football Writers of America with a 1,036-yard, eight-touchdown season in 1970. Then he was reunited with Saban, who resigned from the Broncos to become Buffalo's head coach in December of 1971. It was short-lived. Six months, after, six months later, Briscoe and a defensive lineman were traded to Miami. There, Briscoe promptly helped make NFL history. The 1972 Dolphins, of course, became the NFL's first and so far only undefeated team winning all 14 regular season games before going on to win the Super Bowl. Next year, Briscoe and the Dolphins won Super Bowl yet again. Still, it was somewhat bittersweet that he did that he hadn't found this success at the position he wanted to play. But the thing is, I tell these young guys, young kids, I never quit, Briscoe says now. They thought they had me out of the league, and within two years, I made all pro. Not bragging or anything, but most people would have quit. The Broncos had far less success during this time. Tenzai started 12 games in 1969 and matched Broncos' passing touchdown mark, though with seven more starts. Liskey started the majority of games in 1970, but he didn't, he too didn't lead Denver to much success. It wouldn't be until 1973 that the Broncos had their first winning season. Between Briscoe and Charlie Johnson, their quarterback in 1973, the Broncos tried six different starters at the position. In 1951, Langston Hughes asked, what happens to a dream deferred? At that time, the NFL was just five years removed from dissolving a 13-year ban on black quarterbacks and still two years away from the first game in which a black player threw a pass. In the 17 years between the publication of Hughes' poem titled Harlem and Briscoe's historic start, an unthinkable number of black players' quarterbacks' dreams fell prey to the prejudicial practices of pro football. 
And even after Briscoe broke more than football, and even after Briscoe broke more than pro football's colorberry at the position, things didn't just magically turn around immediately for black quarterbacks. Briscoe never got another chance to start at quarterback after 1968. Quarterbacks who came after him still suffered from intense racism both in their professional and personal lives. The injustice of it all was consuming for many of these men. As in Hughes' poem, their deferred dreams festered, they sagged, and they exploded. For someone like Charlie Choo Choo Brackens not being able to chase his dream of playing quarterback broke his heart. Sandy Stevens could only get the chance to play the position in the CFL in Canada, but he never really got the desire to play quarterback in the NFL out of his system. Then there are those like Elridge Dickey, Joe Gilliam, and Briscoe, all of whom were early pioneers in pro football as black quarterbacks, and all of whom battled problems with drugs. Even though I was successful, won two rings, got out of the game unhurt, in a great financial position, Briscoe told Roden in third in a mile. I often think that the pain and disappointment of not being able to continue my career as a quarterback might have seeped into my psyche. Briscoe was able to eventually escape the clutches of addiction. Vicky and Gilliam, who died at the ages of 54 and 49 respectively, were not. In the decades since Briscoe played for the Broncos, pro football has slowly made progress in working toward an even playing field at quarterback Part of Briscoe's legacy is visible on the field during the football season. But more than that, Briscoe's larger legacy may be in helping others avoid the crushing self-doubt, disappointment, and frustration caused by racism in pro football. We're still not where we probably should have been a long time ago because ain't no doubt about it. There were some opportunities that were missed by a lot of guys that didn't get the chance. Doug Williams says, you think about Antoine Randall L., you think about Tony Dungy. You think about Freddie Solomon. All those guys today will be playing quarterback in the National Football League. When you get these guys today and you think about all those names that I called out, and you say, man, if the mindset has was changed in 1968 to what it is today, ain't no telling where we might be as far as the number of guys who came through the league still playing in this league at the position. To encourage the growth of the fraternity among black quarterbacks, Briscoe, Randall Cunningham, Vince Evans, James Harris, Warren Moon, and Williams formed the field generals in the early 2000s. For years, the group worked to foster a community, hosting football camps, and speaking about the history of the game's black quarterbacks. In 2011, a quarterback who attended one of their camps added to the fraternity's pro ranks when he was drafted first overall. That quarterback, Cam Newton, went on to earn NFL MVP honors in 2015 and led his team to Super Bowl 50. Despite the way things ended in Denver, Briscoe doesn't hold a grudge. Looking back on it, I could have, I could not have been able to do what I did, play in the National Football League any other place in Denver, Briscoe says. Denver was probably the only team in the league that I could make it happen. Naturally, Briscoe still feels disappointed about the way things turned out, but as a never-give-up kind of guy, he tends to be an optimist. When he returns for team alumni functions, 
getting kind words from his former teammates is nice enough. When I go to Denver Broncos reunions, all those guys come up to me and say, man, we could have won with you, Briscoe says. They see it now. Back in those days, you couldn't question anything. You did what the coaches and society told you to do. So you couldn't protest and nobody could lobby for you or anything like that. After all these years, they respected what I was able to bring to the table. So I feel good about that. And though Briscoe may not be as well known as Trailblazers in other sports, his impact remains felt just as strongly in the game today. When we watch Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, or Russell Wilson, we can see how Briscoe changed the game. You got to give him some pioneer status, Will says. Even though he don't get that type of recognition for what he did in 1968, he deserves way more recognition than he gets. Marlon Briscoe's historic moment may be far behind us, but it's never too late for the magician to get his old face. That concludes the Marlon Briscoe story. I hope you have enjoyed it. As Black History Month comes to an end next week, Black history will never die. For I will keep the train rolling with the moments of Black history in sports. At least once a week, it will be something different. I am going to bring this train into the station. Hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. Once again, I am very unfortunate that I couldn't get all the audio of the interview with Coach Laura Harper. But I hope that that I did get. I hope you enjoy it. We will definitely be getting Coach Harper back on. She's a very outstanding young lady. I am blessed to know who she is now. I am blessed to have heard her story, how she made it from high school to college, how she was not the typical kid. You know, she didn't take all those visits. Of course, she visited UConn. I mean, Gina or Emma, who wouldn't visit? But her heart was set on Maryland, and she made the right choice. She won the national title in 2006. But now she has cut her teeth in the coaching ranks at different stops. As a matter of fact, one of the schools that she coached at the high school level, on note that I didn't get to bring out, was that she got all of her players to Division One school. And now she's coaching at Coffin State University, a historically black college university. So to Coach Harper, I say continue doing the good work that you're doing. Continue impacting people. And knowing that you do come from a Christian background, I want to leave this with you. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light so shine before me. They can see your good works. Glorify the Father which is in heaven. Coach Harper, continue to let your light shine. Until the next time, this is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. We are pulling this train to the station. Be blessed. Love y'all.